All right, so we're in Romans 2, 12 through 16, but what I want to do first is I just want to back up one verse, okay? In verse 11 of chapter 2, it says this, there is no favoritism with God. In other words, God is impartial, okay? And, and this is a huge deal, right? This is in the context of understanding that both Jews and Gentiles are equally deserving of God's judgment. If you remember from last week, God's judgment is based on your works. In other words, God's judgment is based on the degree to which someone upholds God's law. And God demands nothing less than perfection if someone is to avoid condemnation. And what this means is that being a Jew did not generate favor with God. God's judgment is impartial. It's not based on ethnicity, knowledge of the law, access to the law, love of the law. His judgment is based solely on obedience, on obedience to what one has been given. Meaning the Jew was judged based on their obedience to the written law, and the Gentile was based was judged based on their obedience to what was written on their heart. And neither the Jew nor the Gentile would have any capacity to obey fully. Right, this is what verse eleven means when Paul writes. Paul writes, there's no favoritism with God. He looks at Jew and Gentile, and both receive the same judgment. And the passage this morning, what it does is it goes on to demonstrate this reality further. It's what I would consider Paul's defense of his claim in verse 11. Okay, So to help you see how this passage is organized, if we take a look at verse 12, right? if verse 11 is like the thesis statement, it's like the big thing. There's no favoritism with God. Verse 12 is like this sub-thesis statement. It explains what he means a little bit further. It says, For all those who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Okay? So verse 11, there's no favoritism. There's no partiality. Between who? Between those who sin without the law, meaning the Gentiles, and then those who sin under the law, meaning the Jews. But the point Paul's making here is that both sin and both will receive the just consequence of their sin. Okay, so that's what's going on in verse 12. It's kind of like the, the sub-thesis statement. Then verse 13 through 16, what he does is he justifies this claim. Verse 13, it deals with the hearers of the law or the Jews. In verses 14 through 16, they're talking about those without the law or the Gentiles. Okay, so that's how we're going to break down the rest of our time this morning. We're going to look at verse 13 as one point on our outline. Then we'll look at verses 14 through 16 on another, as another point on our outline. In verse 13, what we'll do is we'll spend time looking at what's called the Mosaic Law. Okay, the Mosaic Law, well, that'll be the first point on our outline. And then we'll look at what's called the Natural Law for the rest of our passage. Right, those two laws, they form the outline this morning. And so if you zoom out on our passage, just take a bird's eye view on our passage, what you see 
is a word repeated over and over and over and over again. It's in this passage 11 times. The word is law. And throughout the book of Romans, we're going to encounter this word law no less than 70 times. It's a major theme in the book of Romans. It's actually a major theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. And so I figured getting into the passage this morning, it would be helpful to unpack what Paul is referring to when he mentions the law. Okay? So again, first point on our outline, the Mosaic Law. What is it? This is the first question we're going to deal with. What is the Mosaic Law? You know, when the Bible refers to the law, in almost every circumstance, it is referring to the Mosaic Law. And it's called the Mosaic Law because God gave this law to the nation of Israel through Moses. Okay, we read about this in the book of Exodus. We read about how the Israelites, they were enslaved in Egypt and God rescued them through Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. He led them. He protected them. He provided for them as they went through the wilderness of Shur. And then three months after that, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And it was there, three months after this, that the Lord gave Israel the law. And they were a new people. They were a rescued people. They were no longer under the jurisdiction and the oppression of the Egyptians. They were now to live under the care and provision and the authority of God. But to do so, God then needed to communicate what that meant. What did it look like to live under his authority? And so we come to Exodus 19 and 20. And this, I would say, is one of the most dramatic accounts in the whole Bible. All of Israel is gathered around Mount Sinai. They could not go near it. They could not touch the base of the mountain because it was about to host the very presence of God. And three days after sitting around this mountain, all of a sudden, the air was filled with this deafening sound of something like a ram's horn. Smoke enveloped the entire mountain because God was coming down in fire and lightning and thunder just was, it was ricocheting all over the surrounding area. The entire mountain trembled violently. See, no doubt God had the attention of his people. It was a display of ultimate power and authority. And it was in this manner that God delivered his law to Moses and that Moses was then to, to communicate it to his people. And it was in this manner that God gave Moses first the Ten Commandments. Many of you know the Ten Commandments. Just by way of summary, do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony and do not covet. I bet some of you have the Ten Commandments hanging on your childhood home somewhere, right? In the hallway or something. Some of you probably have them memorized. Some of you probably could sing a song about the Ten Commandments. Right? It's one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. But then we keep reading. We get to Exodus 21 and Exodus 22 and 23 and pretty much the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and so much of those books of the Bible, it's, there's all these other laws. There's a whole bunch of laws that I guarantee are not steered into most of our memories, right? But they are also part of the Mosaic Law. 
And so when we talk about the Mosaic law as it was given to Israel in these books, we really have three different categories of the law, okay? The first category is what we call the moral law. This is the law that tells humanity how they ought to live. The Ten Commandments, and some would argue the um, Genesis 1, uh, where they tell Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the Ten Commandments, and then um, that passage work together to form the foundation of what is called the moral law. Okay, The second category is what we call the ceremonial law. These laws were given to establish the process through which Israel could atone for sin. So the moral law, how humans ought to be, how Israel ought to live, and then the ceremonial law, the laws given to establish the process through which Israel could atone for sin. Okay, these include the processes and regulations for burnt offerings, sin offerings, fellowship offerings, who can and cannot be in the presence of the tabernacle, who is clean, who is unclean, the various festivals, ceremonies that Israel was to observe throughout the year. And then we have the third category, which is the civil law. All right, and these laws were given to Israel as a means of just governing the nation. They included laws about what to do about property boundaries or theft or injury and murder or slavery, those types of things. So the moral, ceremonial, and civil laws together make up the entire Mosaic law. This is what the Mosaic law is. Okay, that's our first question. The next question that we need to deal with is, well, what was its purpose? As God gave the Mosaic law to his people, what was its purpose? Not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire Mosaic law. I would say first, it was given to reveal the righteousness of God. It's a big purpose. Right? The law especially the moral law, was largely a reflection of God's character. God's people were not to make idols because God is holy. They were to honor the Sabbath day because God rested on the seventh day. The Israelites were not to murder because God is the giver of life. They were not to commit adultery because God is pure. They're not to bear false witness because God is truth. They were not to steal because God is a giver. Right? The moral law is a reflection of who God is, his very essence. But even the ceremonial laws existed because they reflect the holiness and justice of God. And the, the law, it was not simply a reflection of God's character to the Israelites. The law was also a means of glorifying God among the nations and reflecting his character among the nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5-6 through six says, Look, I have taught you statues and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples or the eyes of the nations. When they hear about these statutes, they will say this great nation, Israel, is indeed a wise and understanding people. So it conveys God's character, not just to the Israelites, but to the whole world. And today, I would say these purposes remain to a degree, but a far greater purpose for the law has now been revealed. And so the last question we need to answer about the Mosaic law is, what role does it play today? What's the significance of the Mosaic law today? 
Okay? And understanding the three categories of the law, the moral, ceremonial, and civil law, it's very important when answering this question, in what role does it play today? Right? So we have the, the three categories of law. Today, the civil law that was given, it, it's fairly obsolete. Not to say that we can't learn about God and his purposes for his people through the civil law, but it's, it does not have weight today because that law, it was given for a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. Okay, so the civil law is obsolete. The ceremonial law, the means through which atonement can be made for sin, is also obsolete. There are no longer rituals in place for sacrifice for the, t- for the atonement of sin. And why is that? It's because Christ is the new and more perfect sacrifice. We learn from the book of Hebrews that the ceremonial law only served to foreshadow the more perfect sacrifice that would come in Jesus. And so what's left? The moral law. What role does God's moral law play today? In verse 13, it says, For the hearers of the law, that is the moral law, They are not righteous before God, but the doers of this law, the moral law, will be justified. And so it seems, based on verse 13, that the moral law can be a means for justification. Right? To be justified or declared righteous before God, all we must do is not just hear the law, but do it. To do the law is to be justified by the law. Now, when considering that the Ten Commandments are a foundation for the moral law, we've got some questions we need to ask ourselves. If the law is to be a means of justification. Have you ever worshipped something other than God? Right? Have you ever loved money or comfort or success or pleasure or your reputation more than God? Or have you ever dishonored your mother and father? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Have you ever been jealous of anyone? Have you ever hated anyone? Matthew 5 tells us that those who hate their brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment as murder. Have you ever lusted after someone? Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In in response to the moral law, Jesus actually simplified this for us. In Matthew 22, a Pharisee comes up and says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on those two commands. So which one of us, on the day of judgment, will be able to stand before God and declare our own righteousness based on our own perfect fulfillment of the moral law? See, what Paul is doing in verse 13 for the Jews is he's simply highlighting the insufficiency of the law. The law would not justify them. The law does not justify us. 
it only condemns us. And this is not to say that the law does not have a role in our sanctification, right? By God's grace, as believers, we should be striving to live out God's law. In fact, our very purpose for our existence is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We are to give our entire selves and lives to knowing and loving God and others. And James would go so far as to say that if the works of the law are not evident in our lives, then our faith is useless and it cannot save us. The moral law is not irrelevant, but it was never to be the tool by which we obtained righteousness. The purpose of the law was to point us to the one who could make us righteous. So that is the Mosaic law. What it is, what its purpose was, and what, it, what role it has today in that it points us to our need for the one who can make us righteous. But what about the one who never had the law? What about those who today have no access to God's law? Right? This is, leads us to our second big point on our outline, which is not the Mosaic law, but the natural law. It's interesting. There are a number of natural laws, laws that just simply exist by nature. They weren't put there by any person or institution. The law of gravity, for example, right? No one here is climbing up to the roof and spreading their arms and jumping and flying. You would, you'd jump fatally to the ground, right? We cannot escape the law of gravity. The law of mathematics is another example of a natural law. Two plus two equals four. That's not something that people just decided. That's just the way it is. There are certain laws of biology. What happens to food when we eat it, for example? It's not something we can control. The process of aging is not something we control. It just happens. These are examples of natural laws, and they are laws that none of us can choose to obey or disobey. But there's a different type of natural law, a law that one of us could choose to obey or disobey. Take a look at verse 14. It says, So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. The Gentiles, by nature, do not have God's moral law. They were never given the Ten Commandments. They were never instructed to love God and love people. And yet, at least to a degree, they do what the law demands and are therefore a law unto themselves. How, how can this be? Right? There's, there's something. There's something inside the human heart that compels us to do what the law demands. I would say almost no one, almost no one, after reading the Ten Commandments for the very first time, would stop and say, wait a minute, it's wrong to murder? I had no idea. That's not in us. Or it's wrong to commit adultery? You're telling me it's wrong to lie? It's wrong to steal? I had no idea. 
That's, that's not the overwhelming response to someone who is exposed to the Ten Commandments for the very first time. No, our natural law is overwhelmingly aligned with God's written law. And this natural law, again, unlike the law of gravity, mathematics, or biology, is the internal understanding, not of how humans are, but of how humans ought to be. That is the natural law. Not of how humans are, but of how humans ought to be. Now, isn't that the work of the law? Of God's written law? Isn't it an explanation of how humans ought to be? The work of God's law is not to show who humans are, but to show who they ought to be as image bearers of the lawgiver. Humans are to reflect the image of God. And God's written law attests to this, as does the natural law written on the heart. See, with or without the law, we have a sense of who we ought to be and what we ought to do. We have a sense of right and wrong. Humans may disagree about the nature of what is right and wrong, but the sense of right and wrong is undoubtedly in every human. And this sense, this instinctual knowledge of right and wrong, it is confirmed by our consciences. Okay, so verse 15, it says, their consciences confirm this. What does that mean? Well, our conscience, it can be defined as the inward moral or inward faculty of moral judgment. Okay, that's the conscience, the inward faculty of moral judgment. In other words, my conscience is the internal sense, listen to this, it's the internal sense that either approves of my obedience to my own sense of right and wrong, or it disapproves of my disobedience to my own sense of right and wrong. That's the conscience. The inward faculty of moral judgment. And so understanding this about the conscience, what I want to do is address three points about the conscience that I think are helpful to understand when dealing with this passage. Okay? Their consciences confirm this. Well, what do we need to understand about the conscience? Number one, our consciences point to a supreme authority. Okay, last week my children were playing in the basement. It was right before dinner. It's almost time to eat. So I was just about to call them up, and then one of my kids started getting upset. So I went down to the basement to check, check it out. Um, and I walked in on one child, and this child says, But you promised. And the other child, who had apparently promised something, said, No, I didn't. And then the upset child said, Yes, you did. And then the other child said, <laughs> Okay, you're right, I did, but it's time to eat now. So you know what's happening here? My children, they're interacting around a particular standard of right and wrong. The child who promised something didn't ever say, there's no moral right and wrong when it comes to making and keeping a promise. 
That's not what they said. They said, no, first the child tried to to deny that the promise was made. I didn't make a promise. What are you talking about? But then when he couldn't deny it, then he tried to justify the breaking of this promise, right? His conscience was telling him it was wrong to break the promise. So he had to appease his conscience. C.S. Lewis opens his book, Mere Christianity, by providing a number of different scenarios just like that, okay? And then he writes this. He says, now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard, or that if it does, there is some special excuse, like it's time to eat. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed. That is C.S. Lewis. And the question is, Where does this law or rule of fair play come from? Where does this need to appease our conscience come from? If there's no standard of objective moral truth and no authority that demands such standard, then my upset child would have no grounds to demand that the other child kept his promise. And the promise-breaking child would feel no need to justify or lie about his promise-breaking. Right? This internal war within ourselves, it points to the fact that the work of the law is, in fact, written on our hearts. Our consciences point to the existence of an authoritative law giver. I think it's worth mentioning here that the authority that our consciences point to are not themselves, right? Our consciences are not the supreme authority. So what happens sometimes is our consciences want to stand in judgment of the supreme authority, stand in judgment of God's word. In other words, we see a command in God's word that seems to go against our conscience. Okay, So for example, God's word instructs us to gather together, does it not? But someone's conscience could very well say, well, I have a thing against organized religion. Or I I feel closer to God when it's just me and him. That's what my conscience tells me. And so they do not gather with the body. Well, that person would be in violation of God's word, even though they're not violating their conscience. They have placed their conscience as the authority over God's word. Must be the other way around. right? God's word must stand in authority and in judgment of our conscience. Our conscience can only be as useful as to the degree that they align with God's word. Right? If someone says, well, I won't serve others because it goes against my conscience, then they need to train their conscience. When our consciences are trained, then we can obey them more freely. 
Okay, and this leads into the second point that we need to understand about the conscience. And it's that our conscience protects against sin. Our consciences protect us against sin. First Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 18 of chapter 1. And he says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. See, our consciences are very powerful. They can keep our hearts soft towards the Lord. But if we do not pay attention to them, what can happen is our consciences can become weakened or even silenced. And one day we might find ourselves casually glancing at another person with lustful thoughts, for example. And our conscience kicks in and reminds us of God's law that says, hey, that's wrong. That is not who you ought to be. You ought to be pure because God is pure. And at that point, what we can do is we can listen and we submit to our good conscience or we can not listen and we can reject our good conscience. And if we choose to not listen, then the next day we might find ourselves doing the same thing, only this time our conscience kicks in, but less strongly. And we think to ourselves, well, okay, this might not be completely right, but at least I'm not doing anything about it. And this pattern can continue until your conscience is no longer bothered by your lustful thoughts. And your lustful thoughts then have liberty to become lustful actions. Your conscience has been silenced and your flesh is free to convince yourself that your lust is justified. But your lust will never be justified before God. Your conscience when it is good and when it is listened to, has the power to protect you from sin. My promise-breaking child very well could have appeased the conscience and said, it's okay that I broke my promise because my conscience is clear. But that would not make it okay, right? Your clear conscience will never make sin okay. Your clear conscience, in reality, might just be a silenced conscience and so here's a question for you to consider have you been ignoring or rejecting a good conscience in any area maybe it's in the area of money and generosity maybe it's in the area of your phone use or other technology Maybe how you spend your time. Okay, there's a number of different areas. But I would say this would be a good question to just to bring before the Lord sometime this week. Have you been ignoring or rejecting a good conscience in any area? Has your conscience been silenced by your continual perseverance against what you know is good and right? And Paul is clear. There are significant consequences for the ongoing rejection of a good conscience. Okay, and this leads us to our third point. Point number three is that our consciences portray our need for Christ. Continuing on in verse 15, it says they're competing thoughts, either 
accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Kind of work, I want to work through this last bit here. I want you to put yourself in the scene of a courtroom, okay? And the reason you are there is because you are on trial for a crime that you did not commit. Okay, well, let's say it was murder. Someone set you up. Okay, the details aren't important, but just know that someone was killed. You didn't do it, but you're on trial for it. Evidence seems to suggest that you are guilty. And in this courtroom, you had waived your right for a jury to a jury. You, you felt as though the jury would be compelled by the evidence that was planted. Or, and maybe, just maybe, what you would be able to do is convince a sympathetic, compassionate, wise judge that you are, in fact, innocent. Okay, that's the situation. What is your greatest problem here? See, it's not just that the judge doesn't have the authority or power to execute justice. He does. It's not that the judge isn't kind and loving. It's not that the judge isn't a man or woman of conviction and character. No, your problem, your biggest problem here is that the judge doesn't know everything. The judge doesn't know the actual events. No human judge, no matter how powerful and good he or she is, has perfect knowledge into every single thing that anyone has ever done. That is impossible for any human judge. Now go back to the passage that we studied last week. So Romans chapter 2, verse 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can take a look there. Verse 6, Romans 2. Here's what it says. He will repay each one according to his works. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There's no doubt that this passage highlights the fact that each person is united in condemnation, right? No one has the ability to do what is required for eternal life. But did you catch what it says in that passage? It says, he will repay each one. Each one. Do you know what this means? It means that God has the ability to know each individual life. He knows everything anyone has ever done. Romans 2, it serves to elevate the goodness of God as a judge, the perfection of God as a judge, as much as it serves to elevate the collective fallen nature of humanity. God's judgment is administered at the individual level. He sees what others don't see. He will repay each one. I love this verse in Hebrews 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. See, I have no doubt in my mind that many of us here have spent hours praying in secret for others in the church. I have no doubt that many of you have spent hours loving and serving others in ways that no one else knows about. 
God sees it. And as a perfect judge, you will never stand falsely condemned before him. He sees all things. He will never judge anyone by what they do not have. He judges the Jews according to the law because they have the law. He doesn't judge the Gentiles according to that law. He judges them according to the works that are written on, his, on their hearts. He is not unfair. Right? He is a good and impartial judge. In verse 16, it says, God judges what people have kept secret. But let me ask you this. Does this reality serve as an advantage or as a disadvantage to you? Because as many wonderful things that you may have done in secret, and I'm sure there are many, there are likely to be just as many things that you have done in secret that are not the things for which God will say, well done, my child. And even the good things we do in secret can often have a secret, selfish motive underneath. I was talking to a friend last month. He's been an atheist for as long as I've known him several years, but he's, he really does enjoy talking at deep levels about faith, and so we tend to get into gospel conversations most of the time we get together, and in a recent conversation, he said, you know, I believe that what we get from the world depends on what we put into the world, okay? That's, that's kind of how he views life in general. What we get out of it is what we put into it, and he told me he was feeling pretty discouraged, and he needed more positivity in his life. And so as a result, he started giving money to the homeless. And he started volunteering more and just tried to be more positive in the workplace. And then this is what he said. He said, but then I realized my whole motivation for doing good to others, it was still me. I was the motivation. Even in my desire to do good to others, I'm still being selfish. The exact words that he used was something like this. I have selfish motives, and no matter what I do, I cannot escape them. And then he stopped, and he looked at me very genuinely, and he said, Cole, is that bad? And I think the answer to that question is in verse 16. See, God judges what people have kept secret. Not just the things we do in secret, but even our intentions and our motives. And there will be a day when God judges each of us individually according to what we have. The law written on our hearts. He will judge us individually according to what we have kept secret according to what our consciences have accused us of. Or if our consciences are untrained and corrupted, that final day will still bring judgment even if our consciences excuse us today. So you want to imagine something uncomfortable. Probably more uncomfortable than those pictures you saw at the beginning. So let's say the latest streaming show to hit Netflix or Hulu or Prime Video, whatever thing you have. Let's say 
It is a documentary of your inner world. Right? Forget the deeds you do in secret. Every motive, every thought, every attitude, every affection, it is streaming right now for the world to see. You know, this is not something we need to imagine. It is a real thing. Only it's not on display for the rest of the world. It is on display before a good and holy and righteous and all-powerful judge. This is more than uncomfortable. This is terrifying. And then Paul concludes his paragraph with this phrase, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. This terrifying reality, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. What an interesting way to conclude what Paul is saying here. Right? The gospel, the gospel means good news. How in the world can this be good news? What is Paul saying? What he's saying is that God's good, impartial judgment is a piece of the gospel message, or even further, that God's good and impartial, impartial judgment is foundational to the gospel message. And this is how our consciences portray our need for Christ. When we understand that we stand exposed, every little thought inkling, attitude, everything about it stands exposed before the good and righteous and impartial judge. Our consciences ought to portray our need for Christ. And if you're like me, if you're honest with yourself, your conscience will accuse you of violating God's law. At one point or another, you have known what is right and you have done wrong. You have known what is good and you have done bad. And because of this, you stand condemned. All right, on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every thought, word, and deed before a holy, righteous, and impartial judge. And when we do, on what grounds will you be considered worthy for heaven? What will you point to? Will your conscience save you? Your conscience will not save you. It is insufficient to save you. Both the written law and the natural law are insufficient to produce salvation. But there is one who is sufficient, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus did not have a conscience that accused him of wrongdoing. Jesus did not need the law. Jesus did not ever feel the need to justify his own selfish motives. Jesus was perfect, not just in deed, but in everything unseen in what was kept secret. Jesus was the exact expression of God's nature. There's no sin and no fault to be found in him, which means that God's impartial judgment would render him innocent and therefore free from punishment. But that's not what happened. Right? Instead, God rendered Jesus guilty and poured out his wrath in judgment on him. How could Jesus, the perfect son of God, be judged as guilty? Especially if God is a good and perfect judge. It is because in his love for us, Jesus took our sin. He took all of it. 
1 Peter 2, 22-24 says he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And here's what this means. Your sin, all of your sin, not just the bad things you've done, but every wrong motive, intention, desire, and affection, all of it. Jesus knows it, and he took it. And he bore it on the cross. All the way from the slightly bad attitude that you might have had this morning at home to the one thing that you have never felt more shame for in your entire life. Jesus knows it, and he took it, and he bore it on the cross. The guilt of your sin, it now rests on Christ. And what he has given us in exchange is a new heart and a new identity and a righteousness that does not come from us. It does not come from our consciences. It comes from him. So here's the question again. On what grounds will you be considered worthy for heaven? What will you point to? See, if by faith you've surrendered to Christ and you believe the gospel, then you will point to Jesus. He is the sufficient payment for your sin. And if you have not yet received Christ, then the guilt of your sin does not rest on him. It rests on you. And on the day of judgment, you will only be able to point to yourself and your works and your conscience as a ground for salvation. And those will be terribly insufficient. So without Christ... Our future is final judgment and eternal death. Praise God that his judgment has been satisfied in Christ, that Jesus has saved us. And if you want a point of application from this text for this week, here it is. Imagine the day that Paul mentions in verse 16. Okay, imagine the day when God judges what people have kept secret. Imagine yourself on that day. And keep imagining and keep thinking and keep meditating and keep dwelling on that day until you are convinced of your need for Christ. And you are more convinced of your need for Christ than you were before. The more convinced you are of your need for Christ on that day, the more clarity and peace and joy you will have as you walk with him today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your all sufficient sacrifice in Jesus. Thank you that you have paid the price for us, God. None of us here have the ability to do what is required of us for salvation, God. You have accomplished that for us in Christ, and we praise you for that. Without you, we are lost, and we stand condemned in our sin, God. But you have rescued us, you have redeemed us, you have given us new life in Christ, and we praise you for that, God. Help us to continue to praise you for that. Help that reality, the truth of the gospel, gospel to penetrate into every aspect of our lives as we meditate on this truth and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.